So what is it that you know today in terms of worshiping God in truth? I'll let you respond for just a second. Father's wrath completely satisfied Jesus. 
Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. All right, well, we're starting a new section uh, in our book, Big Truths for Young Hearts. Okay, we've been talking about God. Okay, and his character and nature, who he is, right? Now, guess what we're going to talk about? You. Not just you. We're talking about us as people, right? That caught you by surprise, didn't it? <laughs> okay, so we're going to talk about us and what it, what it means you know, that God has made us. So let me ask you a question. What is, what do you think, what's the most amazing thing in creation? What do you, you think is the most amazing thing that you've seen that you're just like, wow, that's awesome? What? Yes. Us? Okay, you stole it from me. Okay, hang on to that one. I'm going to come back to you. Yes, what you got? Toys. Okay, toys. All right, what else? Animals. Okay, animals are pretty cool. What you got? You want to think on it for a minute? Okay, think on it. Go ahead, Johnny. Cars? Okay. <laughs> All right. What else? Giraffes, okay, giraffes, what you got? Food, absolutely, yeah, okay. Movies, okay, what else? Water, yep, okay. Wildlife, okay. I'm thinking for me, I'm like stars and galaxies. I mean, that's pretty awesome too. What you got? Are your lies? Okay, absolutely. All right, so God's made all these things, okay, with the exception of a few that people have made, okay, but God's given us the ability to create like he has, right? Did God make the cars? No, but he made us, right, with the ability to think and to imagine and to create and to come up with really cool cars, right, that go really fast or can do some pretty cool things, okay? All right, hang on, my turn, okay? So, but God, do you know what God's masterpiece is? Okay, you said it, it's us, right? That in God's eyes, God's masterpiece, the crown of his creation, are people. Okay, listen to what David says. Here's what the psalmist says. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man, he says, what is people, that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes al along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you hear what he's saying? He's looking at all of creation and the wonder of the stars at night, okay, and, and, and the sky on a clear, sunny summer day, and all of creation, all of the, the animals in the sea and in the air and on the land. And he's just marveling at all that God's made. And he says, it's amazing that you've put such honor and dignity and responsibility on people. Okay? Because we're, we're, not, we're not like the animals. We're not like the stars. Okay? We don't have that kind of glory, that kind of wowness. Okay? But we do have something that they don't have. Do you know what it is? Okay, when God created the world, or when he created the universe, right, on the sixth day, what did he make? Pop quiz, what did he make on the sixth day? People, that's right, he made people. And do you know what he said? In Genesis 1, at the end of Genesis 1, 
He said, let us make man, let us make people in our image. Do you know that you and I and all people, we're the only thing, the only created being that he said, let's make man in our image. Right? We're the only ones that reflect God with that great kind of capacity. Isn't that pretty cool? That's pretty amazing. And he made us last in creation. How many of you have seen fireworks before? Gone to a fireworks show, 4th of July. Okay, what do they do at the very end of the fireworks? Somebody raise your hand tell me. What do they do, Marley? The, the humongous fireworks. What do we call that? The grand finale, right? That's when it was, what do you say after the grand finale? Whoa, wow, that's right. So God's grand finale in creation was creating people. That was the last thing that he did, right? And he gave people a responsibility, a special responsibility. Do you know what it was? He said, rule over and take care of all everything else that I've made. That's a big responsibility, isn't it? Okay, so we're, we're God's masterpiece. Okay, we're the crown of his creation because he's created us in his image, and he's given us a big responsibility to take care of all the creation that he's made. Okay? Now, let me ask you, here's an important point. Should we, should we kind of stand up tall and go, man, I'm pretty good, right? I'm made in God's image. I got this big responsibility. I'm pretty important. Should we, should we take pride in that? No, not in a selfish way. Now, we should feel that responsibility, yes, but not in a selfish way, right? Because did you create yourself? No, 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 not at all. Absolutely not. God made you. Okay, he gave you life and he gave you that being made in his image. Okay, that should cause us to be very humble. Right. Because what does the psalmist do? The psalmist doesn't pat himself on the back and say, go me. No, he stands in awe of who God is and that God's made us. He's made us the way that he's that he has. Okay, what about our attitudes towards other people? Should we think, should we look at somebody else and go, well, I'm better than you because I've got this shirt on or I've got these shoes on and you have different ones on? Or maybe you have a different skin color than I do. Or maybe you made a bad grade on a test and I made a better grade, therefore I'm better than you. Should we think that way? No, no. Because anything that we have, whether that's good or whether that's bad or whether that's just different, that's a gift from God, right? But the key thing is, Another person is made in whose image? God's image, right? Okay. They have the same givenness. They have that same grace that you have. Does it make them any better than you? It doesn't make you any better than them. Okay. So we should treat everyone with the same love and same grace and mercy that God's given to us, right? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second one is what? Love. Okay, that's the first one. And then love people. Yes, love love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? This is what we pray at night, Addie Grace and Ellie, don't we? Pray that Addie Grace and Ellie would love God and would love people. Okay? All right, so we're God's masterpiece. God's made us this way, okay? But we should stand in awe of what God has done, and we should be gentle, and we should be uh, gracious in our love for other people. All right? 
All right, well, I'm excited about this next section because it's really going to be very, very helpful for us, I think, in understanding who we are and seeing who, uh, who God is and what he's done for us. All right, well, let me pray for us, and then you guys can go sit down. Father God, thank you. Thank you and praise you. As the psalmist has said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth that you've given us life. You've created us not in the image of a squirrel or not in the image of a planet or a plant. As amazing as those things are, but Father, you've created us in your image. That's a big responsibility. I pray, Father, these young minds would think about that, that they would uh, they would cling to you. And Father, that you would just continue to grow them in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Alone in my sorrow, dead in my sin. Lost without hope with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. When death was arrested, my life began. Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains. My orphan heart was given to me. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. Arrested in my life began. Oh, your grace, suffering washes all me. You have made me new now, life begins with you. Release from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom me faithfully born. He canceled my debt and he called me his friend. When death was arrested and my life began. Oh, you grace, suffering, washes over. Rejoice this so heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested in my
we do ask that you would be our vision, and not only ours, but that of the nations. As we continue the task that's been given to Christians for centuries, to take the good news about Jesus to those next door, to the ends of the earth. So, Father, we lift up those who are faithful and far away from us physically, the missionaries we support in China and Bangladesh, in Ireland, Lord, and those that we individually encourage and support throughout the rest of the world. Would you be with them, Father? Would your Spirit strengthen them in moments of weakness and even seasons when there is want? May they be able to say with Paul, I know how to get along with much and know how to get along with very little. That I can do all things and that all things being all things pertaining to the glory of Christ that he would be exalted in our lives. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Father, would you do this for these missionaries, Father, who have said, I will go and I will tell the good news that you've given to me that others may know the hope that I have. Father, would you be with us as we engage in local missions efforts? Father, we can't do just global missions over there. It begins here at home. So, Father, would we be faithful to represent Christ well in our families, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with those we come in contact with on a daily basis? Would you loosen our tongues to speak highly of Christ, to think of him? Bring him up in conversations, Father, with those around us. Give us courage that we may speak boldly as we ought to speak. For we know the truth and we know reality. Father, would you bless those who are engaged in conversations with difficult family members and difficult friends where there's tension or perhaps even a relationship is on the line, Father. Would you give us clarity to see what's at stake in eternity? It's the souls of people. Father, would you bless those who engage in conversations with people who are hostile? Whether that's co-workers, whether that's at the abortion clinic, Father, wherever that might be. Father, you would place a hedge of protection around them. That the, the sins of the flesh would not overcome the spirit in those moments, but that Christ would be represented well in humility you'd give clarity of speech to honor the image of God that's in a person who is yelling and screaming. The gospel would be made clear, and Father, that you would do your phenomenal, miraculous work of bringing dead hearts to life. Keep us faithful, Lord. And now, as we come to this point in our service, Father, as Alan opens your word, Give him clarity in speech and in mind. 
Admonish our hearts where we need it. Strengthen those who are weak and whose souls are downcast. That we might go away from here strengthened and emboldened in faith to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. I think that preaching through, I think that preaching through, like having a series, a lot of pastors will do that. They'll preach through series, and that's what they do rather than through books. I think preaching through series have their place or has its place for sure. Um, one of the reasons we really like to walk through an entire book of the Bible with momentary breaks in between or throughout is because now you get to see how it's all building on top of itself. You get to kind of see the cumulative vantage point of what has happened leading up to this point and then identifying or seeing the point that we're now in with regards to the context of this passage. And so we've walked with Jesus through his earthly ministry. And we've been in this for over a year. I mean, I told you six months ago that, that I alone was 30-something sermons in. You know, so you figure Austin every, every fourth week you know, plus the no, no, no telling how many I've had since I told you it was 30. I mean, we've had a lot of time to really kind of investigate and, and have, a, have, a, have a, a very special vantage point into the life of Christ. You know, from the very beginning where he performs his first miracle from the time that he has driven people out of the temple to his strong statements, to his miracles, to his I am statements. And we've seen all these things. And this is very important because here we come to this point where Jesus has already told his disciples, I'm going to be leaving, I'm going to be leaving, I'm going to a place, you can't come now, you can come later. There's some confusion with the disciples, because understand their theology, their Christology, these things are still growing, they're still developing for them. So, so I don't shake my fist or shake my finger at these disciples and saying, hey, you had Christ with you for three years and you haven't really connected with everything yet? No, they haven't connected with everything yet. These things are so lofty for them. You know, and they're, they're young in their faith in the grand scheme of things. Consider that. Consider someone you know or even yourself. You've just come to Christ. You've just said, oh, you know what? I've heard these things. I believe these things. And what you believe is on an elementary level because you can't grasp the things that are loftier. You know, so how could I shake my fist at you or how could you shake your fist at me and say, how, don't, how dare you not get these loftier things yet? I mean, these guys are still babes in the faith. And this is what Jesus has to say to them. He says, I have said these things to you. We're in chapter 16, verse 25. He said, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. Keep in mind, Jesus has just told them about sorrow and joy in this life. He has just told them he's going to leave. You're going to have the helper. You're going to face these hard things. These things are inevitable for you. And you have to have the helper unless, if you don't, you'll fall away. You will stumble. You won't survive. And he tells them, listen, you will go to the Father and you can ask and he'll give you anything when you ask in my name. And now he says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world to go to the Father. That's a clear statement of his deity. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you 
know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them and said, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So let's put ourselves in the context for just a second and try to really connect with the fact that Jesus is moments away from his scourging and his crucifixion and his ultimate death. Moments away. He's been promising this moment as they're subscribing to him as the Messiah. They're trying to reconcile in their mind these events that are going to happen. How does this all play out? How are they able to reconcile what Jesus is saying with what they've been taught as Jewish boys? I told you last week that that their understanding of a Messiah to come, that that was the center point of Jewish life. I mean, that's what they were raised thinking and believing. I mean, that was the heart and the crux of Judaism. Now there's works and all these things, but they believed in a Messiah. Jews that aren't Messianic now are still waiting on that Messiah. They don't believe it to be Jesus. These disciples did. However, they're still wrestling in their own mind, trying to make sense of all things. So Jesus is saying these things to them just before he enters into a time of prayer, and then he goes to the garden. So these are the last words that he gives to them for instruction and for encouragement that's it i mean let that resonate for just a second and 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 think of it not so much as a disciple but think of it from the perspective of jesus jesus has moments to say one last thing and this is what he says he says to them three key things which i want to see in this text he tells them of the great love that the Father has for them. That's important. Before he leaves, he has moments left. He says, what can I give to you? All the things that he said, all the things that you and I have, have, have studied in this text for the last year and a half, it's coming to this point. He says, I've got a few moments to say these final words to them. What is he going to say? First of all, he tells them of the great love of the Father, the incomparable inexhaustible immeasurable love of god and he also tells them he brings for them he brings into question the fullness of their faith so that they may not follow me fall victim to self-reliance and then he makes sure that despite the difficulties that lie ahead of them that they know where and how they can have peace so those are the three things he focuses in on as he's about to conclude his journey with the disciples. And you better believe that that's important for you and that that's important for me. So here's my objective today, to explore Jesus' final words of encouragement before he leaves the disciples. These are his last words. And so I told you there's three things. First, I want to talk about how Jesus highlighted the immeasurable, inexhaustible love of God. Listen to the text again, starting in verse 25. And I want you to see where this happens. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you ask in my name, here it is, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Jesus is saying, I will not ask the Father on your behalf. That's puzzling at first because 
wait a second, isn't, isn't he our intercessor? Doesn't it make more sense that he would go to the Father on our behalf? Absolutely, and he does these things, but here's why he's saying these things. He says, I won't go to the Father, I won't say these things, I won't ask on your behalf for or because the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God or come from God. What he's saying in a nutshell is this. He's saying, listen, you can go directly to God the Father because he loves you you and because he loves you he wants you to talk to him directly he wants you to express your trust your desires your hurts your pains all of these things he wants those things to come from you to him so jesus is saying god is ready and willing to hear from you the father is waiting to hear from you and this is an expression of the inexhaustible and immeasurable love of the father God's love for you is unique. It's very specific. It's a specific love for a specific people. Let me say some things. I want you to follow with me, okay? So let's allow me to get a little theological for just a second, okay? So we need to, we need to track this idea or this framework of the love of God because this is important because this is the, the, one of the final things that Jesus gives to his disciples. He wants them to know the, the, the inexhaustible and immeasurable love of God, right? And that love is a very specific love reserved for a very specific people. Listen, to suggest that God loves the world equally, follow me, equally does two things. And when I say the world, I mean all its inhabitants. To say that God loves the world equally, the elect, the non-elect, the saints, the non-saints, the the saved, the lost, however you want to capture that, to suggest that he loves them equally is to cheapen the love of God for the saints. It cheapens it. Have you ever heard the expression, if everyone's special, no one's special? It's the same sentiment. It cheapens the love of God to suggest that the love that he has for you as his child, that he loves everyone the exact same way, to the exact same degree. And before we balk at that, before we kind of get our, you know, our, our undies in a wad, you know, let's, let's, let's think on that for just a second, because I get it. It doesn't sound nice. (laughs) It doesn't sound great because you and I, I know I was taught growing up, you know, for God so loved the world, and we have this idea that it's it's all the same. It's It's equal for everybody. You know, hey, God's love is so vast. Christ's atonement is so vast that anyone who believes can be saved. No question about it. That's the power and the potency of the atonement. But just like the gospel, the love of God, just as the gospel is only efficacious or effective for those who believe. Does that say that God doesn't love the world? No, God absolutely loves the world. Absolutely. But you can't put that love in the same camp that you put the love of God for the saints, the salvific love of God. I've mentioned this before. If you want more, uh, more opportunity to think on this, I'm going to give you biblical reference in a minute, but there's a book by Don Carson, D.A. Carson. It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, and he does a great job of exposing some text, expositing some text to help explain the multifaceted uh, um, um, application of the love of God. It's very, very, very helpful, and it opened my eyes to this you know, a decade and a half ago as I'm thinking about, I know God loves the world. I know God loves his creation. And then I hear people talk about, but his love for you is unique, it's special, it's different. And so these things, this, that book, along obviously with the scriptures, help to 
conformed my thought processes towards that. But I believe, I said it does two things. To suggest that God loves the world equally does two things. It cheapens the love of God for the saints, and also it ignores, I told you we're going to be a little theological, it ignores the Christological foundation of salvific love. It ignores that Christ is the root of that love. And here's what I mean by that. God loves you in this text, salvifically, because you love Christ. That's what he says. That's exactly what John is arguing. I mean, he says it straight up. He says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. There's a cause and there's an effect. God loves you, saint. Why? Because you love his son, Jesus. Being God's creation is the root of God's general love. God loves, and he can hate the same object, by the way, God loves that which is a product of him and his perfections. God has created this world. He loves the world, absolutely, no question about it, because he made it, and he said what? It was good. Yes, there was sin that entered the world, but he made it his plan, his design, his purpose was perfect. Not just perfect, but it was good, and it was beautiful, and it was right. So I would say being God's creation is the root of God's general love, but Christ is the root of God's salvific love that is lavished onto the saints. There's a very specific love that's lavished onto a very specific people, and you only hear that kind of language in the context of Paul talking about the saints. You know, it's not just John, it's Paul, it's other writers, it's Jesus. And John 10, specifically, about his, his, his talk about the, the sheep as the shepherd. So God's love for you is unique, specific, specific love for specific people. Listen to this. The Father's immeasurable love for you is born out of an infinite love for his son. This is important. These are linked together. God loves you because he loves his son. Now, let me explain this to you by way of illustration, all right? So most of you in here have children. Okay, so, so let, let me zero in specifically on new moms and dads. So we have Evan and Catherine, just as an example, right? And so Evan... Let's say something happens to Nathan, and, and it's, it's, it's a scary scenario. Let's, let's say, I, I saw this story the other day. Let's say that, God forbid, let's say that he, he chokes on something. You're freaking out. Uh, Catherine's freaking out. You, you just lose your wits. You don't know what to do about it. But somebody comes up to you and says, I, I, know, I know how to do the Heimlich on a, on a child, or I know how to do all these things. And they do that, and they show that great love and that care and that concern to that child, to Nathan, that person is going to be more endearing to you having saved your son's life than they've ever been before. They're going to be more endearing to you to, than to most people that you meet, right? Because, because they've shown this love in a way to your child. Now, let's, let's expand that illustration, okay? That's, a, that's not a small illustration. That's not a small thing to happen. That's not a small service. But what about others? What about others in your life or in your children's lives, dads and moms, who have played significant roles to where over years and years they've shown love to your child over and over again. They've done, they've said the right things, the hard things. They've been there for you. They've been there for your children. What happens to that relationship dynamic? Your love for that person grows. Why? Because they have shown great love to your child. And you love that person because they love your child, but what's the root? The root is your love for your child. 
That's why you love that person so much. You love your child because you love your child. And on a grander scale, this is what's happening here. This is what John is explaining to these disciples. I'm sorry, Jesus is explaining to these disciples. He's like, look, God loves you in a special way. You can't miss this. You love me. And how do we know that they love him? Jesus says, look, I'm going to give you the template for loving me. If you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. So if you're a commandment keeper, you are a lover of Christ. And if you're loving Christ, God sees that, and God loves you. Why? Because you've exalted his son. This speaks volume to the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So those of you with parents, maybe now you can catch just a, just a glimpse of, of, of why Jesus speaks in this way and how it makes a little more sense. I mean, there are people in my life that have loved my kids tremendously. And my affections for those people that love my children grows. And why? Because I love my children. I love my children. And so God's love for us is necessarily connected to our love for Jesus. But most importantly, because of his love for the Son. God's love for you is born out of his love for his Son. Jesus. So God's love is specific. God's love is unique. Now I'm not going to spend any more time talking on the the specifics of the love of God. Hopefully you've 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 seen that God does love the world. God's love spans so far. But my argument is that there is a specific special pointed love for the saints compared to his love for all other things. So Jesus tells them, first of all, that there is a love of God and it is immeasurable. It is inexhaustible. It is, uncom- it is incomparable. It's vast. It's eternal. God has set his affections upon you before the foundations of the world. Why? Because your name was written before the foundation of the world. So Jesus leaves them with the first of these three statements being, God loves you and it's immeasurable. The second, Jesus zeroes in on the necessity of a mature faith. So we've seen love, now we see the necessity of a mature faith. Listen to the text, starting in verse 29. So his disciples said, now you're speaking plainly. And not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus said, do you believe? So just connect with this for just a second, okay? Connect with this as the disciples here. We're putting ourselves there. We don't, we don't read the Bible into our lives. We stay in the context and we say, you know, what's, what's happening? Or we don't, we don't insert ourselves. Well, we do, but... Anyway, not to confuse the issue, but we're, 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 we're interacting with the text where it is, what it means there, okay? We're not morphing it. We're not changing it. We're not trying to adapt it. We're not trying to do all these things. We're going to where it is, and he says, listen, there's a necessity for you to have mature faith. This is found in the fact that he's asking them, do you really, really believe? Because they come to him, and they say, we know. We know now. We understand. 
And I, and I searched through several commentaries, and they, they, they agree with this, so it's not this crazy idea that I've kind of conjured up or anything like that. But they come to him, and they say, look, now we know. Now we get it. So there's this moment of assurity for them. There's this moment of self-reliance because we, we get it. And how do we know that it's a moment of self-surety or self-reliance or self-confidence? Because of Jesus' question, do you really believe you see, Jesus is not calling into question their salvation. That's not what he's doing. He wasn't doubting their salvation, but he's asking them this question to bring about caution into their lives. In other words, he's saying, let's not get ahead of ourselves. You believe, you believe to a degree. You're still working through this stuff. Where did Jesus find the disciples when he came back after he rose from the dead? They went back to work as if they abandoned the cause. So they're still working through these things. And so him knowing their minds, I'm sure, knowing their hearts, he calls into question the maturity of their faith. I mean, they're new Christians. What Jesus is teaching is, 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 is radical and is going to cost them their life. He tells them this. I'm going to go. The helper's going to come. They're going to kick you out of the synagogue. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna kill you in service to God. This is what's coming. He says, you need the helper lest you fall away. You need the helper lest you stumble. And now he's saying to them again, reiterating the same thing, but in different terminology, by way of a question, how mature is your faith, really? Because you better believe when the persecution lands, your faith has to be strong. Or you won't stand. You see, it's a dangerous thing to become self-reliant and self confident these are enemies of the gospel self-reliance and self-confidence this is the problem by and large with the american gospel in part that you pick yourself up by your bootstraps you're a self-made man or woman and it's a dangerous thing one theologian said it this way it's one thing to know the soldier's drill and to wear the soldier's uniform, but it's another thing to be steadfast in the midst of battle. You understand what he's getting at? I can say all day long, I'm ready. I believe. Now I know. Now I get it. And Jesus sees it. He says, be careful of your self-confidence. Be careful be careful of your self-reliance because the heat is coming. The heat is coming. I've received the heat. I'm going to go, and now it's coming to you and anybody else who professes me. And an immature faith will not stand. He's saying be ready for the days ahead. Self-confidence and self-reliance are enemies of the gospel. The gospel says that you could do nothing, so Jesus did everything. Proverbs 3.5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on what? Your own understanding. They're saying there's no room for self-confidence. There's no room for self-assurance. There's no room for these things. Is there room for confidence? Yes. Is there room for assurance? Yes. Connected to or rooted in what? The gospel. 
the accomplished, victorious work of Christ, not in your ability to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Proverbs 12, 21, 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. What does he mean by that? He means we have our plans, we have our agendas, we have what we think we know, what we think we're ready for, but at the end of the day, God really knows. And this is what Jesus is doing with the disciples. He's calling into question the maturity of their faith. He's giving a cautionary word to make sure that they can be ready for what's ahead. And I told you last week, we don't look at this and say, hey, there's 2,000 years of separation, 2,000 years where this doesn't apply to me. No, this is a continuing narrative. You are just inserted into the story 2,000 years later, but the application is the exact same. And instead of persecution that was about to begin, persecution is full bore for us now. The Lord is challenging them towards having a mature faith. Let me speak practically about a mature faith, okay? And then we'll move to the third point. A mature faith is not the result of volunteerism in your local church, in your food pantry, in your local mission. That does not mean mature faith. And I'm not thinking of anyone here. We don't have a food pantry. We don't have those things. But we understand volunteerism. We ask you to volunteer all the time. But let's be very clear, no one's under the delusion that volunteering or showing up one Sunday to the next or whatever is not the deepest and truest testimony of your mature faith. It's just not. It can't be. Because anybody can do these things without any cost. Mature faith is not necessarily the result of faithful church gathering attendance. Mature faith is not contingent upon your theological vernacular or acumen. It's just not. This was a lesson that I've seminarians learn, for me, the hard way. Because you think you've arrived because you learn a few words, speaking of myself, not of you. You use a few words and you think, wow, oh, that's maturity because I can explain the hypostatic union of Christ. But, but the Lord has taught me over the years, this is not what mature faith is at its root because the simplest of men, the simplest of women, are sometimes the, the, the grandest heroes of the faith. Because of faithfulness, because of a relentless pursuit of God, specifically the heart of God. The disciples were untrained and uneducated men, and yet the scripture says that they turned the world upside down. They were not mature in their faith in this moment. But what would follow would be a rapid growth, a rapid maturity, which leads me to this point it's not necessarily something that has to be developed over time. I'm not one of these people that says, okay, you've just become a Christian. Well, let's, let's see what happens in 20 years. Then you can be mature. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying it works that way at all. Wisdom doesn't necessarily work that way. God can gift wisdom. God can grant wisdom just like he does to Solomon, who next to Jesus was the wisest man to ever walk the face of the earth. So, Mature faith, a robust faith, a strong faith is not necessarily developed over a long period of time. It can be, and often is, but it's often also developed over a short period of time. I would say the disciples, thrown into the mix, their faith matured very quickly. Their strength of faith matured very, very quickly. They heeded the words of Jesus. They clung to him. They abided in Christ 
Jesus has already covered that with him several times, and now you see why. Abide in me, abide in my love, stay close, stay true, stay this way, remain, remain, remain. Why? Now it starts to come full circle, because the heat's about to be on you, the pressure's about to come down, and then you will fall away unless you are abiding in me, unless you have mature faith. Mature faith is developed when Christ or when God is earnestly pursued. So my question before we finish with a third point is what kind of faith do you have? Not to be answered out loud, obviously, but you think about it. What kind of faith do you have? I don't know if they made it into my notes, but as I was thinking about a mature faith, there are things that come to mind like meekness, right? Consistency, humility, self-control, right? Wisdom. These are things that require a mature faith. And I, 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 we've mentioned it for the last two weeks. I'll mention it again. Um, you know, the, 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 the people that have been going out to the abortion mill, they, they, post, these, they post these videos that are uh, most often very gun, gut-wrenching, but at the same time encouraging. Um, and you see these things, and I can't help but think to myself, man, man, you really have to really have a mature faith. Because the temptation to lose your mind, the temptation to respond in kind to the volatile nature of the way they carry themselves, the temptation has to be overwhelming. To have insults and cursings hurled at you relentlessly and with great volume, both in size and in sound. And to either pray as a response, give scripture as a response, try to engage as with the gospel as a response has to require, by God's grace, a mature faith. Because what does a weak faith do? It stumbles. It falls away. It doesn't handle that situation like it should. I mean, Peter got out of the boat and what happened? Started to sink. Maybe his faith was strong when he stepped out, but in that moment he saw everything around him, but he began to sink because he took his eyes away from Jesus. Peter does the same thing whenever he's asked about his association with Jesus, and he denies Christ not once but three times. So these guys are still wrestling with their maturity and in, in their faith, and Jesus calls it out. Do you really believe? Because you're going to have to have something. You're going to have to have some theological, some, some, some spiritual grit behind you if you're going to be able to stand. And that's not just for when someone's hurling insults. Not jo- that's not just when you're in a volatile situation. What if you've got someone that's passive and someone that's very calm and someone that's mildly mannered and you feel that I need to share the gospel with them, but over and over and over again you refuse. You refuse. Not because you're scared they're going to become ugly, but for whatever other reason you might refuse when you feel that it's very clear that that's something you should do. 
I think Jesus would say the same thing to you and to me. Do you really believe? Is your faith really mature enough to handle this? Because I think mature faith radically changes our evangelism. It radically changes our obedience. So Jesus tells them, be ready for these days ahead. Be ready. He tells them there's a, ne- there's a necessity to mature faith. The final thing is this. He talks about his own power. He talks about the fact that you can have peace. You take heart because I've overcome the world. So listen to the text again. We'll pick up in verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, which Jesus all throughout the gospel of John has said, the hour is not yet come. It has not yet come. Now, because we've been trekking through it, we see this culminating moment where the hour has come. It's time. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me, notice this, in me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus says to them to take heart. Here, listen, I want to say this first of all, because I I really want this last bit to be very encouraging for you, okay? I say strong things sometimes, I say hard things sometimes, and maybe some of us walk away feeling like we're the scum of the earth sometimes. I get it, but I want to encourage you with these things. Listen, I'm not a motivational speaker, uh, parading as some pastor or for a local church. We have quite enough of those uh, who wave the banner of Christian leader, elder, who rather than prepare the way, they... Uh, prepare you for war. They make you feel better about yourself. That's not what I do. However, I do want to be encouraging. I do want to share with you this last bit, this last moment is very encouraging. This should bring delight to your ears and comfort to your heart. It should provide courage for, a, for the timid and hope for the despairing. And keep in mind, this is the last thing that Jesus says with regards to his ultimate instructions or encouragement for them take heart take heart you who sit right out here before me because you just fall 2,000 years further in this narrative take heart take heart meaning let not your soul be downcast or despaired let not the world around you steal your joy listen this is Look at the beauty of how the scriptures just unfold. Last week, we looked at sorrow and joy. We looked at how sorrow is inevitable. We looked at how these things coexist, but we're sojourners. I mean, this is a part of that sorrow. A part of the sorrow is that you will have tribulation in this world. You have two positions. You have a position in Christ, Ephesians 1, the whole chapter, and you have in the world. You are not the world, but you are in the world you are not of the world the world and its systems the evil the prince of the power of the air the sons of disobedience ephesians 2 you're not that but you're in it you're in the mix you're in the battle you're in the war you've got the suit on you've known the drills now the question is can you be steadfast when the battle ensues and it has jesus is our victor is what he says i've overcome the world so take heart you have reason for sorrow because you've been given a front row seat to the horrors and the realities of what it is to live in a broken world and where sorrow is necessary 
and joy can't be stolen, take heart. Are you so much different from these disciples? I really want you to connect with this. I really want you to hear this. If, if, if you don't have any sorrow, if things don't bother you at all, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know where, I don't know where you are spiritually. I, I don't know at all. But, I, but how can you look at the things that happen all the time and not be grieved so very much at those who celebrate the things that God hates, right? But know this, Christ is victorious. Three quick points about that. His victory is before the foundation of the world. His victory is absolute. And his victory is that he has overcome the world. So first of all, his victory was secured before the foundation of the world. Notice, he hasn't gone to the cross yet, but he gives them a present promise. He says, I have overcome the world. But he hasn't died and rose again yet. Let's take it back many, many years to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions, but he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Listen to this. And with his wounds we are healed. He says this to, I mean, this is, this is Isaiah writing this. How in the world, when Jesus hasn't even been born yet, when we're talking uh, uh, 700-ish years, something like that, I don't know, so check me on that. Close to 1,000 years before Christ even comes. <laughs> Isaiah saying, by his stripes you are healed. You are redeemed. You are rescued. Now, to be a little, ner- be a little nerdy, and, and I've told you this before, let me give you a reminder. Isaiah speaking what's called a prophetic perfect, meaning what's going to happen has such strong implication that it affects the past as well as the future okay so well it affects them now as we're looking at the past it affects them in the book of isaiah now as he's speaking to them something that hasn't even happened but that's a declaration of the potency of christ's atonement his work was already ordained so the effect was applied now i don't want to be confusing it doesn't mean that you know somebody that's not in Christ and you don't treat them as though they're in Christ when it very well may be that 10 years from now they do become a Christian. You don't know that. That's not the way that this applies. This applies in the sense that back then they can have redemption, they can have rescue, they can have pardon, they can have these things because of what Christ was going to do. It shows the absolute nature of the atonement. It shows the surety that's in the cross and the gospel. And how it has effect now. It's not a potential thing. You know, it's, it's an actual thing. It's something that is guaranteed. The beauty of it is that as we look at the world, as we look at Christ and his accomplishments, we're not waiting on a result. We're not waiting on the edge of our seat to see who's going to win, to see how this thing's all going to shake out. We don't have to worry about that because he has overcome the world. He has defeated all of these things. So his victory is secured before the foundation of the world. He's always been victorious. He's always been the head of all things. His victory is also absolute. The battle of Christ against the prince of the power of the air is not, by the way, a nail-biter. It's not an equal matchup. I used to watch a lot of UFC, and one thing they always do on TV is they give you what's called the tail of the tape, and they do this with boxing and other sports like that. And they measure up these two men, or now these two women, and they show kind of how they match up using numbers, things like their records, their reach, 
Maybe a commentator will talk about their skill set. Okay, this person's good at stand-up. This person's good at ground and pound. They're a good wrestler. They're a good Muay Thai. You know, so they start to give you these facts that help you to measure up the two opponents. And most of the time they do that, it's a pretty close matchup. That's what they want it to be. They want you to be excited. They want you to anticipate a good fight. And sometimes I think that's how a lot of people approach the war between God Almighty, specifically Jesus, and the prince of the power of the air. Like there's this crazy battle, like, oh, we don't know what's going to happen. We know Jesus is going to win, but man, it's going to be a good fight. No, it's not. (laughs) Not at all. Not in the least. That's nonsense, by the way. It's nonsense. There was an old song by a guy named Carmen, and I've been to a concert. If you don't know who that is, check it out. You're laughing. Yeah, you get it. So I went to a concert. I was all about Carmen, and I'd go around the song, go around the house singing, you know, you know, all his songs, okay? I know it's weird, but he has this song where, where uh, it's called The Champion. Man, I would nerd out over this song all the time, and, and, and he sings, talk sings, whatever it is that he does, and, and the, 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 the word picture that he gives you, gives you is of Satan in the boxing ring with Jesus, and the devil whoops him up and down the ring. And Jesus falls, and then finally Jesus comes up, and he's victorious, he wins, and this is great thing. But you're on the edge of your seat thinking, is Jesus going to win? Is he going to win this thing? Listen to me. Jesus did not squeeze out a victory against the enemy of this world. Do you understand this? It is definitive. It is absolute. It wasn't eked out. He didn't just get by the skin of his teeth. That wasn't how it happened. Look, I'm going to get excited in a minute. Listen, listen, there's no measuring up between the overcomer of the world and the prince of the power of the air. We know that Satan is powerful, but we are fools if we think that his power even remotely compares or holds a candle to the power of Jesus, the overcomer of the world. Do you understand that Jesus created Satan? And do you understand that Satan has to have permission to do anything that he does? And the one that gives him permission is not you. It's not you by acquiescing to temptation. It's not you by giving into temptation. It's not you giving the enemy authority. He has what he has and he does what he does under the strict authority of God. Period. Period. Listen to how Paul describes the power of Jesus. He says, listen, church, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints? Here it is. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? He doesn't stop there. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Here we go. And seated him, Jesus, at the right hand in the heavenly places. That is authority. That is power. Far above all rule and authority. Do you understand what he just said? There's rule and there's authority. And then there's Jesus far above all those things. Not just rule and authority, but power and dominion. And above every name that is named. Names like Caesar. Names like Pilate. Yes, 
not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So he goes beyond names. He goes beyond dominions, rulers, and all these things. He goes to ages. He gets on the timeline, he says, as far as the east is to the west with regards to time, Jesus transcends them all. He's above every name. He's above all these things, rule, power, authority, dominion. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. The Bible also says that, guess what? The earth is to God Almighty, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, specifically Jesus here. The earth is the footstool to Jesus. The footstool. It props up his foot as if he needed something to prop up his foot. That's what these powers and dominions and authorities are compared to the overcomer. Listen, Christ has the earth as his footstool. Satan only works and moves under the perimeters of Jesus. Christ commanded the armies of the enemy to come out of a person and go into pigs. They didn't, they didn't negotiate with him. You know, they, they, well, they, well, they did say, hey, can you, send us, can you send us here? But they're begging for mercy. They didn't say, Step, you know, come, come at me, Jesus. They, they didn't go with that business. They said, hey, will you allow us to do this? Mercy. I mean, my goodness, demons obey. They believe. They tremble before Jesus. Christ is a creator of all things. Satan is an inferior created being. He's more powerful than you and I, but greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. Christ, according to the author of Hebrews, upholds the universe with the words of his power. The stinking universe. <laughs> you know? It, it, Satan will ultimately, be, ultimately meet the same demise as all of those who hate God. All of those who celebrate the things that God hates. Satan will meet the same demise. Because Christ's victory is that he has overcome the world. This means that he has overcome all the evils of this world system. He's overcome the prince of the power of the air. Listen, listen to me. This is the last few sentences. The abortionists do not win. You get that? We hate it. We hate it. Whether you're hating it on Saturday from the hill or whether you're hating it as you grieve watching these videos, you hate it. God hates it, hands that shed innocent blood, right? We hate these things, but they don't win. The mockers and the scoffers, you know what? They don't win because Christ has overcome the world. The Democrats don't win. Guess what? The Republicans don't either because Christ has overcome the world. Your sinful nature as a believer doesn't win because Christ has overcome the world. He has overcome your fears, your anxieties, etc. His death and resurrection have overcome the condemning effects of your sin. And you know what we call this? The gospel. This is why we hold in high esteem the gospel of Jesus. Because all these things that we celebrate today in the last 40, 45 minutes are rooted exclusively in the gospel. This is why we challenge you to speak it, to think it, to see through it as a lens. This is why it's called your identity, and it's why it matters. So my prayer as we dismiss, 
is that the gospel would be central to our lives at work, at home, in our parenting, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, and whatever role you fill. Because when that is what happens, your light shines before men and God is glorified and that's why we're created. And the gospel allows that to happen. Let's pray. My prayer is simple today, God, and that's just that we might represent you well. That the gospel might be easily identifiable in our lives by those who see us. That we would have unceasing joy that you have overcome the world. No matter what sorrow we have to be witness to, or no matter what sorrow affects us, that we would take heart because you have overcome the world. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray and have our faith and have our confidence and have our surety. Amen. You're dismissed.